in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, from verse 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, commencing at verse 1. I'm going to read in J.B. Phillips' <coughs> version. I think it sometimes brings it home to us. When Jesus had finished all this teaching, he spoke to his disciples. Do you realize that the Passover will begin in two days' time, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and crucified? At that very time, the chief priests and elders of the people had assembled in the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, and were discussing together how they, might, how they might get hold of Jesus by some trick and kill him. But they kept saying, it must not be during the festival, or there might be a riot. Back in Bethany, while Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of most expensive perfume and poured it on his head as he was at table. The disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, What is the point of such wicked waste? Couldn't this perfume have been sold for a lot of money which could be given to the poor? Jesus knew what they were saying and spoke to them why must you make this woman feel uncomfortable? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You have the poor with you always, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she was preparing it for my burial. I assure you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, this deed of hers will also be recounted as her memorial to me. After this, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot by name, approached the chief priests. What will you give me, he said to them, if I hand him over to you? They settled with him for thirty silver coins, and from then on he looked for a convenient opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus with the question, Where do you want us to make our preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city, Jesus replied, to a certain man there, and say to him, The Master says, My time is near. I am going to keep the Passover with my disciples at your house. The disciples did as Jesus had instructed them, and prepared the Passover. Then late in the evening, he took his place at table with the twelve, and during the meal he said, I tell you plainly that one of you is going to betray me. They were deeply distressed at this, and each began to say to him in turn, Surely, Lord, I am not the one. And his answer was, The man who has dipped his hand into the dish with me is the man who will betray me. It is true that the Son of Man will follow the road foretold by the Scriptures, but alas for the man through whom he is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. 
And Judas, who actually betrayed him, said, Master, am I the one? As you say, replied Jesus. In the middle of the meal, Jesus took a loaf, and after blessing it, he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples. Take and eat this, he said, it is my body. Then he took a cup, and after thanking God, he gave it to them with the words, Drink this, all of you, for it is my blood, the blood of the new agreement, shed to set many free from their sins. I tell you, I will drink no more wine until I drink it fresh with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn together and went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, now, I have entitled this, with much difficulty, The Threshold of the Passion of God's King. It is the first subdivision of this last uh, division of um, Matthew's Gospel, The Passion and the Triumph of God's King. Now, this evening, we come to this first of the three subdivisions and uh, as I have said I have entitled it the threshold because really there was no other word that adequately conveyed what I wanted to say but it's very awkward indeed the threshold I want to say that this is as it were not actually the passion of the king but it's right as it were at the door uh, it, 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 it's, it's not an introduction to it either because some things happened here which um, uh, don't just introduce us to the passion they are, they are part of it so I've entitled it The Threshold of the Passion of God's King and if anyone has a better word please see me I did ask last week and no one um, helped me at all Matthew introduces us to the climax of this gospel, the passion of God's king, by adding one little word to that formula with which he has marked the end of the five great discourses in his gospel. You remember the little formula, and after these uh, sayings, after he had finished these sayings, uh, he, and so on. And that was the way he marked the end of the five great discourses in um, uh, Matthew's Gospel. Now he adds one little word, and if you look at chapter 26, verse 1, you will find it. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. The, the American Standard Version, I think the Revised Version, says when Jesus had finished all these words. The Revised Standard Version says all these sayings. Philip gets the feeling of it when he says when Jesus had finished all his teaching. Now if you look back over the Gospel to the other um, <coughs> times he uses this little phrase, first for instance in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28 we read and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words mm -hmm. chapter 11 verse 1 and it came to pass when Jesus had finished commanding his 12 disciples 
chapter 13 verse 53 and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables chapter 19 verse 1 and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words now we come to Matthew chapter 26 verse 1 and we we have the inclusion of one small but all-important little word all when and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings now is this a coincidence was it just a slip of the tongue uh, was it just uh, an extra word certainly not uh, Matthew obviously means us to understand that Christ has now fulfilled one whole phase in God's plan. He'd finished the phase of instruction. He'd finished the phase of revelation. He'd finished the phase of great miracles and mighty acts as such. All that was now Finished. And Matthew means us to understand that. That whole phase is closed. Now the king moves forward majestically to his life work. And uh, there's something very beautiful about the way um, Matthew introduces these last chapters of the gospel. Uh, there is no sense of panic. There is no sense of fluster. <laughs> there is no sense that the Lord Jesus is, as it were, mm, uh, under uh, the uh, plots and intrigues and everything else of man and the devil. But rather, it's as if quite absolutely on time, he has finished one whole phase and fulfilled it, and now he moves forward. So John commences this section with these a little word we've got used to, this little formula we've got used to, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be betrayed in and uh, crucified. One other little thing about this whole section on the threshold of his life work, Matthew draws our attention to three important things. The first, I have entitled the sovereign authority of the king. The second, Mary's anointing of the king and Judas's betrayal of him. And the third, the Last Supper. These are the three things, as it were, three events, three matters that Matthew focuses our attention upon on the threshold of uh, Christ's passion. Well now, first of all, the sovereign authority of God's King. That is the first five verses of chapter 20. Six. Now, will you notice, Matthew compares in this little section, which is vital, 
he compares the words of Christ with the words of the Sanhedrin. First, he takes the words of Christ. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The words of our Lord. Then he takes the words of the Sanhedrin, plotting and, and intriguing, and their words are these, not during the Passover, not during the feast, lest there be a tumult among the people. And then I want you to note verse 3, then. Sometimes people feel that the writers of the gospel had no humor. But in actual fact, there is a lot of humor in the gospel, uh, in, different, uh, in the different gospels. And in some ways, it's here in this little word, then. You've got it two or three times in this chapter. First, we have the calm prediction of the Lord Jesus. What was his word? During the Passover. Then. It says, then the, um, uh, were gathered together the chief priests and the elders of the people under the court of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. They took counsel together that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be a tumult among the people. The word is, then. Matthew is drawing our attention to something. Christ said during the Passover, the Sanhedrin said not during the Passover. And now, from this point onwards, it's as if Matthew is, is showing to us who was right, whose words were fulfilled. The whole, in fact, the whole of this section, right through to chapter 30, is a proving of the... Um, words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were right. You know that after two days come, the Passover is coming <coughs> and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now, the Sanhedrin, notice this, the Sanhedrin meeting together met, were meeting to plot Christ's arrest and death. Now, that was the purpose of their coming together. And they met together, not in their usual place of gathering, but in the high priest's house. So it was a kind of clandestine type of affair. It was um, a conspiracy. And uh, they were there uh, to um, plot uh, and intrigue uh, with the, as Phillips puts it, by some trick uh, to arrest Jesus and to uh, kill him. Now they said not during the Passover and uh, we must just understand what this phrase means. If you look carefully you will see in, in verse um, 2 authorized version the feast of the Passover in the American Standard Version the revised version the revised standard version just the Passover and then in verse 5, the phrase, during the feast, that is the Revised Version, American Standard Version, and the Revised Standard Version. Now, this phrase could mean the day of the feast, the act.
actual day of the Passover meal, which was one particular day. Or it could mean the whole period of the feast, which lasted in all eight days. Now, I think the latter uh, meaning is the one that uh, was in mind here. So the Lord Jesus said, during these days, I will be crucified. The Sanhedrin said, during these days, he mustn't be arrested or killed. That is the comparison between the words of Christ and the words of the Sanhedrin. Now, why were the Sanhedrin so afraid? They were afraid, and this is the reason why I believe the phrase in that is in mind here is the whole festival they were afraid because of the crowds who were up to Jerusalem now the feast of unleavened bread or the feast of the Passover was the biggest festival of the whole Jewish year and from all sides and from all areas and not only just from the land itself Judea uh, and beyond Samaria but from many parts of the dispersion came the faithful to celebrate the Passover at Jerusalem. The place was simply packed. In fact, it was a law, an unwritten law, uh, that every Jewish household must be open and that anyone who asked for hospitality could not be refused. Uh, it was as simple as that. The place the Jerusalem was so packed they had to do that. There was no other way to house the people or keep the people. There was an enormous crowd there every year for the Passover. It was the great festival of the Jewish year. And you must understand this, that you couldn't keep the Passover anywhere else but in Jerusalem. Because only <coughs> in the temple could the lamb be slain. So if you wanted to keep the Passover, you had to go to Jerusalem in order to get the lamb slain to be able to eat it together. Simple as that. And therefore all the people came uh, up for that time. There were many, many Galileans amongst them. And the Galileans, as if you remember those studies on the background of the New Testament, were a very um, high-spirited and hot-blooded crowd. They were a highly imaginative uh, people. And uh, they were given to rioting. And uh, of course the Lord Jesus was um, as far as his long uh, le length of his life was concerned, a Galilean lived most of his life in Galilee, and the Galileans were very much for him. And therefore the Sanhedrin said, not during the feast lest there be a tumult amongst the people. They were frightened of the crowd. And they knew that over those eight days, all this enormous crowd with them, many of whom, even if they didn't <coughs> understand the Lord Jesus, highly favoured him and were sympathetic uh, towards him. Now, that really is the background of this. These verses, from verse 1 to verse 30, show how Christ's words were fulfilled in spite of the Sanhedrin. And when you start to understand that, you see something of the excitement, in one way, that's in these verses. Because the Sanhedrin says, not during the festival, and Christ has said, during the festival. Then, as the story unfolds, we begin to see how it all came to pass that he was arrested in uh, the festival. Many Christians have got the idea that the Sanhedrin actually plotted his arrest. It wasn't so. Judas went and uh, offered to betray him. They said, right, all right. You look for an opportune moment. 
The fact was that Christ precipitated his arrest because at the Last Supper, he suddenly said to Jude, he suddenly said, one of you is going to betray me. You know the story. And uh, finally Judas said, is it I? He said, it is. And John tells us, he said to him, that what thou doest, do quickly. And immediately Judas went out. He panicked, probably. Thought he was found out. So he panicked. Went out immediately. And arranged for an enormous rabble, as Moffat puts it, come with cudgels and staves, to arrest this weaponless man uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, that's the story, but you see, we shall see that as we look um, uh, through it. It's quite clear that Matthew intends us to see the authority of the king. That's why I've entitled it the sovereign authority of the king. Calvary was no accident, nor was it what some Christians think, a mistake which God overruled and used. Calvary was no mistake. We are face to face with another mystery. The mystery of God's predestinating power and man's free will. We're, we're up against a huge mystery which we cannot reconcile. On the one side, Calvary was directly the result of the engineering of wicked and evil men. On the other side, it had been determined before the very foundation of the world. That's exactly what Matthew's trying to put over to us. On the one side, he tells us quite clearly all about their plots and their intrigues and Judas and everyone else. And on the other side, he shows us the majesty of the king as he moves forward calmly, step by step, right through the whole thing. It was no accident. It was no mistake that God overruled and used, it was a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment, Calvary. God had made an appointment for his son, and his son kept it on time. That's what you've got here. We have seen right the way through the whole story, the authority of God's king but never more clearly than in these chapters do we see his sovereign authority. On the surface, it would seem that he's at the mercy of evil men, of circumstances and situations engineered by Satan himself. He's at the mercy of these things. So it would seem on the surface. But as we look, deeper beneath the surface we discover that it is the king who is ruling evil men and ruling devilish circumstances and devilish situations to accomplish God's purpose and fulfill God's will <coughs> now is that scriptural well, now, let's take a look at some scriptures. John chapter 10. 
John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Oh, the sovereign authority in those words. I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Why, when you, you, you read those words again, then, what does it say? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who, who was called Caiaphas and took counsel together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. <coughs> It would seem almost that they were going to murder him in a kind of assassination. That's the atmosphere that uh, you get in this kind of uh, clandestine meeting. They were going to just get hold of him uh, stealthily and, and just um, murder him. Judas Iscariot's premature um, arrangement uh, meant that it had to be a bit more public and unfortunately had to be over the feast days uh, as well. Well now, you go on here, verse 18. No one taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment received I from my Father. Sovereign authority. Sovereign authority. Then you turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. And Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Is it I, Rabbi? And he saith unto him, Thou hast said. Now compare those words with John <coughs> chapter 13 and verse 27. And after the sop, then entered Satan into him. Jesus therefore saith unto him, What thou doest, do quickly. What an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, surely this does present some non-Christians with a problem. I think it presents some Christians with a problem. It's the most extraordinary thing that the Lord Jesus actually said to Judas Iscariot, That that thou doest, do quickly as if he was commanding and ruling evil for the accomplishing of the will of God. Turn back to Matthew chapter 26 and those matchless words in verse 53. Wonderful words. All thinkest thou that I cannot beseech my father and he shall even now send me more than twelve legions of angels? That's the whole army. Twelve legions of angels. Sovereign authority. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Now, this sort of bold uh, preaching has gone right out of fashion today. And, um, because we're all terribly democratic. And um, we tend to feel democracy is the thing in heaven as well. And uh, so we, we, we don't... Well, we're either one side or the other. We're either Calvinist or we're Arminian. We, we're 
quite unable to bring the two things together. But the thing that the early church reveled in was just simply stating facts which sometimes to the human mind were irreconcilable. Now, just look at this and see if this doesn't make your head real. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, don't just stay, don't just stay with foreknowledge. Determinate counsel. Counsel that determines. And foreknowledge of God. Ye, by the hand of lawless men, did crucify and slay. You've got two things. Ye, by the hand of lawless men, crucify and slay. It's the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that did it, and yet you did the work. And you're not excused because you did it. Now you turn over the page again to chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, <coughs> verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that in ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But the things which God foreshowed by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. You did it in ignorance, as did all your rulers. But God was behind it. He fulfilled it. Chapter 4, verse 27. What other truth? In this city, oh, this is marvelous. I don't <coughs> think anyone today would ever preach like this. Just listen to this. For of a truth in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatsoever. And then you quite sure it's going to say whatsoever they determined to do. And it says whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. What a way of putting it. What a way of putting it. I think it's uh, quite extraordinary. Now, if you want an example just to uh, send you all home full of theological problems, um, you've got it in John chapter 11. Here you have the perfect example of these two things that Matthew is trying to underline for us at the beginning of these chapters. John chapter 11, verse 47 to 53. Now, this is the account of one of the meetings of the, um, uh, of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, therefore, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many signs. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Nor did he. Nor do ye take account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. He didn't know what he was talking about actually. Now this he said, not of himself, but being high priest that year, this wicked man, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. 
and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. So from that day forth they took counsel that they might put him to death. Now isn't that a problem for you? <coughs> well there you are, the sovereign authority of God's king. Sovereign authority of God's king. Calvary wasn't an accident. Calvary was no mistake. Calvary was a divine appointment. And the king is not just being hemmed around and pushed forward by evil men and satanic situations, but he's ruling them. He's absolutely ruling them that they might work out uh, the will of God and fulfill uh, the purpose of God. Now, the second thing in this section on the, that I've entitled the threshold of the king's passion is from the verses 6 to 16. 6 to 16. <coughs> Mary's anointing of the king and Judas's betrayal of him. Now, do you remember, those of you who were with us right at the very beginning of these studies, how I told you that one of the things that stands out in Matthew's style is his love of comparing. All the way through Matthew, he takes this and compares it with that. He takes this and he compares it with that. All the way through. And it is no more clear than here in this passage. In the passage we've just uh, dealt with, comparing the words of Christ with the words of the Sanhedrin. Now, he takes two disciples. Mark you, two disciples. But these two were called disciples. Outwardly, they were disciples. He takes two disciples, and he compares them. One is a woman, and the other is a man. And he compares these two disciples. One anointed the king, the other betrayed. Now, it's not just my idea, but it's true. For the little word then in verse 3 is exactly the same word we have again connecting the two stories in verse 14. Then one of the twelve went. In other words, Judas going out to, um, uh, to uh, sell Christ came out of the story of Mary's anointing of the king. Now let's look at it. Two stories, two disciples, one a woman, one a man. The woman who in some measure understood the deeper meaning and purpose of Christ's coming. And in an action without words expressed that understanding and entered into the heart of the Lord as no one else did during the last years, the last days of his earthly life. That's one story. How much she understood? We'll talk about that in a moment. But she understood in some measure, and she expressed her understanding 
in an action which is one of the superlative things in the New Testament. The other a man, for three years he had been the constant companion of the king. He had been the witness of all his words and the witness of all his acts. He occupied a very honoured and privileged position amongst the twelve. He was their treasurer. Now normally, normally, uh, you only ask someone <coughs> to look after the money that you all trust and honour and respect. He was the treasurer. It says so in John. Is he kept the bag? That's how it puts it in the authorised version. Kept the bag. And uh, John plays on the words. He says he bears the bag. He bore the bag. With the idea that he bore a lot of it away. Never to be seen again. But um, you've got a comparison between the one disciple and this other disciple. For 30 pieces of silver, he was ready to sell the king. After three years of being with him, three years of instruction, three years when he saw all the miracles and the mighty works, three years when he heard all the greatest discourses that have ever fallen from a human lip. After three years, he was ready to sell sell that one for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it is more than interesting if you turn back to Exodus and chapter uh, 21 and verse 31 that that 30 pieces of silver is the value determined by the law of God for a slave. Here it is, verse 31 of chapter 21 of Exodus whether if the ox or a manservant or a maidservant, a slave, there shall be given unto their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stolen. That was the value of a slave. If you read in the previous verses, you will find that the value of a daughter or a son or, or of anyone else was to be determined by the relatives. But the slave, the sum was determined. Thirty pieces of silver. By the way, pieces is shekels. Thirty coins. Thirty she silver shekel coins. It's all quite simple. When we come to the story of the Lord Jesus, Judas, Judas is prepared to sell his Lord and his Messiah. Thirty pieces of silver. In other words, the value we put on Christ was the value of a common slave. That's all. Now, oh, we shall come again to that in um, one moment. We have, therefore, here, described for us the most beautiful story in the New Testament and the most vile. 
For I think there is nothing more vile than treachery. I think we all share that feeling. Of course, perhaps we haven't suffered in the same way, but there is nothing more vile than treachery. Why, we can, we can forgive Pontius Pilate, we, for, we can forgive the soldiers, we, we can forgive... But, but this kind of treachery was something that is, that is vile, absolutely vile. And even our Lord described him as the son of perdition. If we compare these verses um, with Mark and chapter 14 from verse 1 to 11, and John chapter 12 from, one, from verse 1 to 8, It appears, that those are the two other accounts in the scripture of this anointing of the Lord Jesus, it, it appears that the woman was Mary, the sister of uh, Martha and Lazarus. And that Simon the leper must have been, in whose house, by the way, it all took place, must have been a near relative. Now, someone has suggested that he may well have been the father of Mary, and Martha and Lazarus. And this is one of the interesting mysteries of the New Testament. Who was Simon the leper? Another interesting fact is this, he must have been healed. Now, was it some uh, miraculous healing? Was it a healing uh, that was the result of the Lord's touch? But Simon the leper to be there at home and the others to be there with him in the house means that he must have been cleansed from his leprosy and that he would have been restored to full health, and therefore full intercourse with not only his own family, but everyone else. These mysteries. Who was Simon the leper? Well, certainly he must have been a near relative if he was not the father of uh, Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus. That's just a little of the background. It also becomes clear that the story is not in its right chronological order uh, in Matthew. Because if you look at John, you will discover that it took place four days previously. Now, um, Matthew does not date it. You will notice that Matthew simply says, now when Jesus was at Bethany, now when Jesus was at Bethany, he doesn't date it. John, on the other hand, in John chapter 12 and uh, verse 1, he clearly dates it. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Now, if we compare John chapter 12 verse 1 with Matthew chapter 26 and verse 1, we discover that this meal at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper took place four days before um, the Last Supper. That is, it must have been on the Sunday, the Saturday, the Sabbath uh, before. Now, if that's so, uh, we get a little bit of um, the background to it. Now, why does Matthew tell the story out of its chronological sequence? And, and indeed, so does Mark. Why do they both tell the story out of its sequence? Because they want to give us the reason for Judas's betrayal. 
It was a direct consequence of what happened in the house of Simon the leper that Judas went out and betrayed Christ. Something during that meal infuriated Judas. It absolutely enraged him. And the bitterness which had been in his heart for some time finally, as it were, came out into the open. And he went out to do something. Now that's why um, <laughs> uh, Matthew tells the story. You see, I've already mentioned in uh, verse uh, 14, after Matthew has told the story of Mary's anointing of the Lord Jesus, it, he puts it like this, Then, one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Well, now, there we are. It's interesting to compare Matthew chapter 26, verse 8, with Mark chapter 14, verse 4, and John chapter 12, verse 4. Now, you bring those three together. First, Matthew chapter 26, verse 8. This is what Matthew says. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Mark chapter 14 verse 4 says, And some of them were indignant, saying, To what purpose this waste? John chapter 12 verse 4 says, And Judas Iscariot said, why this waste? Now, isn't that interesting? I tell you why it's so interesting. Because you had there perfectly described the course of every faction in the church. It all starts with one person, generally a critic, who nearly always infects others, and finally everyone gets infected. It's always the same. Matthew tells us the disciples were indignant. Mark tells us some of them were indignant. John tells us it was Judas Iscariot. It started with him. He was the one who was the bitter and twisted one and spread right out through uh, them all. Well, it would seem that it was Judas's criticism that uh, probably stirred up the whole twelve. And it all goes to show how frail and human we all are. That not one person recognized the value of what Mary did. But all of them were influenced by Judas's uh, criticism. It was certainly the Lord's public and direct rebuke that led Judas to betray Christ. Um, if you look at uh, verses 14 to 16, we've already read those about him going out and said, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, <clears throat> we have here then, on the threshold of Christ's passion, an exquisitely beautiful story of Mary taking something that was utterly precious, <coughs> utterly precious, and lavishing <coughs> it on Christ. Note verse 7 
in the revised version, in the revised standard version. A woman came up to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment. In the revised version, it puts it like this. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster cruise of exceeding precious ointment. It was something very costly indeed. Now, Mark tells us that it cost 300 pence. And one penny, uh, as such, <coughs> using our terms, was the wages of a labourer for the day. So really, 300 pence is almost a year's wages. That's how valuable it was. This alabaster jar uh, or cruise of ointment was something kept normally for burial. And um, uh, rather like in Chinese households, uh, when you get to a certain age, the one thing you must do is buy your coffin. And then... Uh, of course, they're materialistic. We aren't so materialistic in this way and feel terrible. This is a horrifying thing, but they buy a beautiful coffin. The, be the better, the, uh, the nicer, the better. And we put it uh, in the most obvious place in the house so that everyone who comes in can see um, that beautiful uh, coffin. And um, in the, uh, uh, amongst the Jews, um, especially in Judea, in the promised land, they, what they did was they used to have an alabaster jar of very precious ointment that they kept for their burial or the burial of some close and dear one, near relative. <coughs> now often that represented their life savings. And in many homes that was the most costly thing in the whole house. Quite honestly, it was the most valuable thing in the whole house. You could bulldoze the rest, and it didn't matter. That was the thing in which all the value lay in the house. Now, when you realise that, you understand what Mary did. She took something that was reserved either for her own burial or her father, if it was Simon the leper, or possibly for someone else. They must have used something on dear old Lazarus when he died just previously <laughs> and been raised. He was there, of course, at the meal. <laughs> So they must have had this probably was her own. It was there for her own burial. It represented something to her uh, as a, a, her nest egg. Her, all her savings were in that. Now she took that and she broke it. She didn't just, as it were, use a little, but she broke the thing and poured the whole lot out on him. On his head and his feet. She anointed him. She took all her savings, the thing that represented the most valuable thing in the whole house. She took it and she, and I use the word advisedly, she lavished it on him. She lavished it on him. It was the sheer excess of devotion. Of course, there are these dear Christians who've got everything regulated to the last minute who don't know anything of excess or anything else like that. It's all beautifully done. Mary was of another order. Why many of us would have stopped and thought, no, 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 no. Be careful. Careful. <laughs> that could have gone out to, to sort of later on send Paul on his missionary journeys. 
that could have gone on this that could have been used on that the Lord's not interested in sentimental little things like this oh, of course not he, he's in this sense he's hard headed I mean he's more interested in the cash value of it that's exactly how Judas influenced all the others Judas's criticism was malignant and malicious but the rest they began to think along the line oh dear this is terrible I mean I mean the Lord's not interested in this kind of all we've heard from him selling everything, giving it to the poor and, and caring for everyone. I mean, the Lord's not interested in this kind of thing. So they were influenced by it. Did Mary really perceive something of the meaning of Christ's death? Now, this, to me, is the, is the, uh, the point. Did Mary really perceive something of Christ, of the meaning of Christ's death? He had now spoken many times. We've, we've followed him through these years. We've, we've heard him speak just in the last year more and more about his coming death. He'd spoken many times. Only just recently he'd been speaking about how he was going to be crucified and on the third day rise again. But no one took him seriously. No one. Or summed up when, when, when Peter said, This shall never be. Peter said, This shall never be. None of them took him seriously. It's only after this they began to take him seriously. When at the Last Supper, they began to be sorrowful. But up to this point, no one had taken him seriously. Now, now, did Mary really do something she didn't understand. Some commentators tell us uh, Mary didn't understand what she was doing. She just did something. Suddenly, something came into her heart and head and she expressed her devotion. She did. Uh, was it like that? Did she do something she had no understanding of? Or alone of those disciples? Was she the one, and a woman, was she the one who understood? Well, there's another mystery for you. Is the beauty of this story the fact that she alone dimly, dimly understood and perceived his coming passion and realized how near it was? and took something that was for her burial. And without fully understanding the implications, lavished the whole thing on him. I say, if that is so, it is the most exquisitely beautiful story in the Bible. Exquisitely beautiful. Note verse 10. In the Revised Standard Version, it puts it like this. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Uh, and then again, notice verse 12. Uh, this is why I believe that this is true. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Now, I don't think that Mary fully understood what she was doing, but I believe she had perceived something. And whereas the other disciples did not take the Lord seriously, she, it dawned on her, there was truth in it. He was going to die. In that moment, she was the only mortal that entered into fellowship with God in the purpose of his heart. And, oh, priceless position, she was the only human being who helped him bear the load that was coming. That's why the Lord turned round and said, leave her alone. Why do you embarrass her? Why do you trouble her? Why do you make her feel uncomfortable? Leave her alone. She's done this for me. Now, the words are upon thee. In the Revised Version, she had done a good work. She has wrought a good work upon me. In this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done something to me. Something to me. Oh, words of the Master. When everyone was going to forsake him, when no one could penetrate that darkness into which he passed alone, this one disciple and a woman penetrated farther than any other mortal and uh, supported our Lord. Certainly it, it, it's true, whatever we may feel, that in his life of service and sorrow, on only a few rare occasions, was he ever shown such love. This was the greatest. Now, I don't know if this has ever dawned on all of you, for it has much, we shall probably have to stop here, but it has much for us. It has much for us. I wonder if it's ever dawned upon you that the Lord was very rarely, if ever, shown love for himself. If you look through the New Testament, you will discover that the Lord only ever got thanked for what he'd done. And sometimes he didn't even get thanked. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, you think, go away and think about it. Maybe it'll set your hearts thinking. Why did the Lord say of this woman, what she hath done shall be told? shall be recounted wherever the gospel is preached. Why? What an extraordinary thing. I'm quite sure some Christians must feel as I once used to. Well, that's an extraordinary thing to say. Why should this... Uh, I mean, it was a wonderful act. It was perhaps a little sentimental, but it was a, a wonderful, it was a beautiful act. But why should that be told wherever the gospel uh, is recounted? What, what, why has it got such great significance? Why should the Lord say, as long as the gospel is preached, what this woman has done shall be told? as her memorial. Now why? Well, I believe we get to the heart of the matter when we understand, as I've said, that on a few rare occasions, and very few, was he ever shown love. And this was the greatest occasion of them all. People who, to whom and for whom he had done much, came and thanked him. Uh, 
but we have very few records of any who actually out from their own initiative from their own initiative went and did something <coughs> do you understand what I mean by their own initiative was something wasn't done to them or for them that made them go back immediately and do something in return nothing had been done in one way to Mary just at this point she of course if it was this Mary as we believe it was and is this was the Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and got on the nerves of Martha. Well, if that's what sitting at Jesus' feet accomplished, we should be eternally grateful. I mean, she wasn't just a dreamy person. She was someone who, in her quietness, sitting at his feet, had perceived something which all the other busy and active ones had overlooked. There was the Master, not once, but again and again, speaking that he was going up to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified and the third day would be raised. Not a soul listened. It fell on deaf ears. None of them understood. It even says they remembered after he was, had been raised from the dead. They remembered afterwards. That's how, that was the impression it made on their, on their mind. Now... <laughs> I say, it seems to me that, did, that Mary did something uh, on her own initiative. It wasn't that the Lord had suddenly done something in the house, and therefore she was going to, it's true, Lazarus had been raised from the dead a while before, but I mean, that wasn't it. She saw something. It is not recorded that she said anything. Oh, some of us, myself included, clanging gongs or whatever we read, we read in 1 Corinthians 13, empty cans, we say today, that make the most noise. It is not recorded that she said a single word. But into her heart uh, there came an idea. The idea germinated. She went wherever this most priceless and costly thing was preserved and she took it. Before anyone could stop her, and oh my dear friends, I think all the others would have stopped her if she'd had fellowship with any of them. They would have stopped her. Oh, they would have done. They would have wrecked her devotion. We would never have had the story. But before anyone could lay their clammy hands of death upon her devotion, she'd done it! She'd done it! And in that moment, she entered into a fellowship with the Lord that no one else in three and a half years of public ministry of life had entered. Does that not have something for you and me? Oh, we're all the same. We're all the same. Don't let us uh, start to pass our judgment upon the disciples or, as it were, just simply feel that... Uh, um, 
We're in a superior position. We're all the same. How often we only open our mouths in praise when the Lord's done something for us. And even then some of us don't open our mouths. I've noticed it again and again. I've been amazed. I see it in myself. But it's always easier to see it in others. And I've seen it again and again. When something's happened, I thought, my goodness, surely someone's going to open their mouth and praise the Lord. But they don't. But that's not even what the Master's looking for. He expects that. That when something has been done for us, we should thank him. That we should open our mouths and worship him and praise him. But this story has a significance that goes far beyond the story itself in this sense that this is the thing that means more to the master than anything else people who start not to judge everything on what they've got and what they're getting but what he wants and what he is getting and I think that is the root of the story that for the first time Mary understood it's something he needs it's something that he can get out of this oh for such a for such a way do you know as i've said i think before in this place nearly all our conventions uh, uh, and certainly most of our meetings for the deepening of spiritual life are all built on this principle of something that you can get you rarely ever find any confidence with a thing what he can get. It takes an almighty revolution, a bomb, to turn us around and invert the order so for the first time it's not what we're getting, what we're getting, but what he is getting. But I've often said it, and I say it again, it's the beginning of spiritual adulthood. Now, all these disciples were infants. This woman was the only adult. I mean it. They were a lot of little babies. As soon as the master was crucified, and I say it to myself, we'd have all done the same. They couldn't get any more. So they all went away. Simple as that. They'd lost the fund of all resources. They'd lost the one who could always feed them, give them everything, sort of always be around, listen to every cry and so on. They'd lost him. It was the end, the bottom dropped down. She was the only spiritually adult person in the whole lot. For her, it was not what she got, but what he needed. And what he got. That's the story. Now even the disciples called it waste. And Phillips puts it beautiful, beautifully when he puts it like this. Why this wicked waste? That's the whole feeling in it. Why this wicked waste? Whole year's wages gone down the drain. I say it, I don't just say it colloquially, I mean it. That's just what they thought. Down the drain, that's how they would have referred to it. Not on the master down the drain. This money could have been, this, this ointment could have been sold if she'd wanted to get rid of it. We could have done this and we could have done that and we could have helped this and helped that and done the other. But the master silenced them all. 
They could have given their thousands to missions and everything else. But this woman had done more than all that put together. Just before Gethsemane, she was the one human being who in one sense, if you know what I mean, gave the Lord hope. If you know what I mean. Just the one human being that gave the Lord hope. I sometimes wonder when he was in Gethsemane whether as in that moment of darkness there came back into his mind one name, Mary. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I wonder whether on the cross, when that great cry came out of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There came back into his heart one name, Mary. The one person who'd understood. Have you ever asked yourselves, I'm going to end now, but have you ever asked yourselves why in the story of Gethsemane the Lord came back? three times to the disciples. Have you ever wondered? I mean, if he was going to get through, why not get it through alone? Why not get through alone? It says he took these disciples, then he took three of them, then he went a little, only a little farther forward, and then he fell on his face and he prayed. He came back and he found them sleeping. And he said, what, could you not keep awake for one hour? Then he went forward and prayed again. And then he came back and found them sleeping. Said the same thing. He went away again and prayed. Why did he come back? I mean, he knew they were asleep. Don't you think that there was something on the, in the human nature of our Lord that craved, I say it again and again, craved for some human fellowship. Craved for it. If there had only been one of those disciples had been there just alive, just awake, it would have helped him. Not one of them. Now, why do I tell that? So that's to do with Gethsemane that we shall take to later occasion. Why do I tell it? I tell that story because that is precisely what Mary did. She was not asleep. She was awake. She saw through and saw something. And of all, she was the one person who entered into the fellowship with her Lord. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, if Mary's story is exquisitely beautiful, Judas's betrayal is repellingly evil. And if the Lord said that this story, this action of Mary would be recounted as her memorial so long as the gospel is preached, then let us say this, Judas's action is likewise remembered so long as there shall be time as his memorial. We know, of course, that he was the hidden traitor all along. We know he stole from the treasury through the years. We know that there was bitterness and a malignant malice in his heart. 
Do not ever tell me that a person goes out to do something as treacherous and as evil as Judas did on the spur of the moment. It is a lie. A man must have fallen away in his heart long before he does such evil things. And it is only the occasion which is right, which draws out the evil that is in the person. So it was with Judas. The Lord Jesus put it like this, he has gone to his own. Terribly, terribly put. He has gone to his own. Two disciples, the story of two disciples told on the threshold of the Lord's passion, the King's passion. Now, my dear friend, dear child of God, where are you in those two stories? Where are you in those two stories? Don't you just think that those two stories belong to the beginning of this age? In China, those stories have been relived with people who have lavished something on the Lord and others who've betrayed. In Eastern Europe, and in Russia, as you heard on Tuesday, the story has been retold. People have lavished something on the Lord, others have betrayed. It is not so stupid to ask the question, in which camp are you? Where do you find your home? Why such wicked ways? She has done a beautiful thing to me. May God give us grace so that uh, we are amongst those who, who, having heard the gospel, enter into something of the spirit and character that the Lord longs for as a result of the gospel not just what I can get but what he can get may the Lord help us uh, to be there shall we pray beloved Lord we bow in thy presence and we thank thee together for thy love toward us and we pray Lord that thou wouldst cause us to grow up so that, Lord, we may be those who somehow enter into fellowship with Thee. There is something of Thy afflictions left for us to fill up. There is a fellowship, Lord, uh, of Thy sufferings. And we pray together that we may not just know the dark side, but we might know what it is to enter into cooperation with thee in thy purpose and in the supreme objectives of thy heart. Lord, then, do this work in all of us, we pray, and we ask it in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.